What makes someone good company? Could we have that on the screen? Have a chat to the person next to you. What makes someone good company? Well, I wonder what those characteristics are that you identified as making someone good company. We're thinking today about companions on the journey. So this is our penultimate Sunday on our series on journeys. Just eight short weeks ago, we set out with Abraham who risked setting out on a journey. I found this series a real blessing. Sarah Picks will be finishing the series in two weeks with From Darkness to Light, but today we're exploring companions on the journey, and we're in a, le a letter written to the early church by the Apostle Peter, who reckons his hearers one company, a holy nation. The word companion is made up of two Latin words, com, which means with, and panis, which means bread. So your companions are those with whom you break bread. That's pertinent to us because we break bread around the Lord's table. So our companions are those with whom we share the Lord's Supper. But what can Peter teach us about journeying well together as companions? He says, rid yourselves of envy. Was anyone in here envious of King Charles when he was coronated in May? Anyone? No, isn't that interesting? We don't get envious of royals. We're not envious of the king. The reason is he's a bit weird. He, <laughs> he rides in a golden carriage. He lives in a castle. That's very far removed from our lives. I'd like to suggest we get envious of people. They're in the same lane as us, but they're a bit, doing a bit better. And Peter says, rid yourselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. You can tell he's writing to Christians, can't you? We can be terrible at this stuff, but cry out for the spiritual milk. Feeding on the right stuff is important, and crying out for it as well. Our first son, he would cry out a lot for that milk, and I was working at the time, and so my wife and I agreed that she would sleep in another room with our son, so we had separate rooms. A couple of weeks later, someone came up to us, said, how are the nights going? I said, they're going fine, thank you so much for asking. And my wife gave me quite a serious look at that point. Nah, your nights are going fine. I'm up with our son six or seven times. I've heard that breast milk changes as the baby grows. And as we journey and grow, God, just, uh, God doesn't just give us formula. He gives us what we need. Well, Abraham took a risk setting out. He was called by God to leave all that he knew. Um, God promised that his descendants would live in the land of Canaan, even though he was very old, his wife was very old, past childbearing age. But there was this promise, and actually a promise that the whole world would be blessed through his line. And now we know that that was the Messiah, Jesus. But even though Abraham had these promises related to the land of Canaan, the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham, Noah, Enoch and Abel were foreigners and strangers on earth, and they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. So Abraham had that sense, actually these promises, they're not just immediate, there's a heavenly calling to them. And the writer to the Hebrews 
writing to their hearers and to us as holy brothers and sisters, you who share in the heavenly calling. God called Abraham on a journey, and he calls us as well on a journey. And this theme is taken up by Peter in his letters. He writes in the first letter, live out the time of your sojourn in reverence. And a sojourn is when you're out of your true country. Israel sojourned in Egypt until the right time came and God called them out and they headed across the Sinai Peninsula to the promised land. And in Peter's second letter, he says, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Jesus died so that personal sins can be taken away and we can be adopted as children of the Heavenly Father, seen as holy by him through the lens of Jesus' own righteousness. And he did that for others as well and we can be connected with other people. But we sing a song sometimes, to redeem the whole creation, you did not despise the cross. The scope is really big. It's a big final realization. We don't know how it all will work out. But within this promise, Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. He's using Old Testament language in Exodus after the Israelites had come through the waters of the Red Sea. Uh, it says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The work of Jesus made a holy nation and a priesthood of believers journeying together towards the fullness of God's promises. It's a beautiful thing. How do we find our companions on the journey? Well, between Israel's deliverance and the giving of the law, that holy nation was organized into groups of thousands, fifties, and tens, says in Exodus 18. So one nation, but 12 tribes, and then groupings, and then smaller groupings, little cells of 10 people. So there's one nation, but many cells. Cells are neat aren't they? They've got all these different bits in there and they all sort of work together and look after each other. And when you've got a strong cell, uh, that, that makes for a healthy body, which are just made up of cells. People need little groups. An ancient Israelite couldn't know everyone in that holy nation, so they had their tribe, they had their subdivision, and then they had their few people around them. A few years ago, Someone did some research, someone called Dunbar, and they found that people can have a maximum of 150 meaningful relationships. So that's 150 people who you know a little bit about them, and then within that, people actually need those like, circles of just a few people, perhaps two people who are really close, and then 15 sort of you know um, a bit more. Um, so companies, when they have, they try and put more than 150 people in a building, that's when sometimes you can get complications. 
150 is a good number for uh, like a settlement. If there's limited resources and people are really clubbing together, if there's not that sort of pressure, actually uh, closer to 100 is a, a, an ideal grouping. And that's what we see in Exodus. That's one of the groupings. So the big holy nation had lots of little groups. Peter writes, you are being built into a spiritual house. If we look at one of these bricks, they're each surrounded by five or six other bricks. So you've got perhaps seven where the connections are good. And then if you've got lots of that good connection through a wall that's stable, and then you've got a strong house. So if we're exploring themes of companions on a journey, one question to ask is, who are my people? Which are the little groups and partnerships that I'm journeying with. When I mentioned the title of this talk to Emily, my wife, she said, I've just got to, to say that a little group for her has been a group of fellow homeschoolers. Um, and so she wrote this. When Joe said he was going to be talking about companionship, I instantly thought of my experience as a home-educating mother over the last two years. It can be a lonely journey sometimes, but one that I believe I am called to for now. Walking alongside other Christian mums and dads and grandparents that have the same calling has been life-giving. There has been one lady in particular in Oxford, an author and home educator about 70 years old called Sally Clarkson, who, has, who had a heart for encouraging home educating mums. I went along to a weekly group that she led. It was a support group with a Bible study which drew on ideas outlined in Sally's books. She had been there and got the t-shirt, home educating her own four children when they were younger. Every week, she would always ask how we were doing, and we all shared the realities of our week, which could be mundane or humorous or really heavy. She would encourage us and help us to lift our gaze to Jesus, to keep running the marathon of motherhood, to aim for ideals, even if we didn't meet them, to hope, to dream, to work hard investing in our families, and to thank God for his grace. There would be about 10 mums there each week. All of us were from different denominations and different ways of home educating. And that challenged and inspired me. And our shared hopes encouraged me. Since moving to Salisbury, I have started a group in our home and invited other Christian home educating mums along so we can be each other's companions. Discussing Sally Clarkson's books, reading the words, encouraging each other and praying for each other in order to keep walking the path God has called us to. We need the Lord and we need each other, don't we? So cells are the building blocks. There are closer to 100 than 10 of us here today and it's really good to gather, to praise, to pray and hear God's word. But in terms of being built together... This is probably not where deep fellowship is happening. Life groups, though, have a vision of doing that deeper fellowship to support one another in little groups of seven or eight. We started one in September in our home, so we get together every week. We have some tea. We have some biscuits. We just sort of catch up with each other. And then we have a couple of songs 
focus our affections on the Lord, and then we gather around the Word. So we're going through 1 Peter at the moment, and the way we do it is we share it round. So somebody will prepare a reflection based on a few verses and some questions to get us thinking, and we just chew that passage for a while. And it's good hearing other people's perspectives, what they're seeing that I'm not seeing. It's a really rich time, and then at the end, we pray for each other. Life groups should be a place where people do life together. It's not a place where we broadcast what great Christians we are, but where we admit life can be a struggle. We don't have it all together. We don't have to have it all together, and companions on the journey can help. Seven or eight works really well. If your life group is growing, getting to 10 or more, that's probably time to chat with John, and maybe that's time to to propagate the, the life group to have another little cell. We live in a world where brokenness is a reality for everyone. John has said in a recent preach he did, he had to teach his children all sorts of things when they were growing up. He never had to teach them to be selfish. They just did that automatically. Whatever virtues and graces we have, we come into this life with a fallen nature. We make mistakes. We get bumped and scraped. So sometimes it can be prudent to find companions on the journey who can walk with us in the brokenness. In Mark's gospel, we see a bit of that where there's um, a paralyzed man, can't get to Jesus, so his friends put him up, lower him down through the roof into this crowded scene where Jesus is. They get him close to Jesus, and Jesus heals this man. From around 2007, there was a curate at St. Mark's Church just down the road who was called Mark. Mark and I were friends and flatmates at university in Bath. In 2004, we went together to a national gathering of leaders within a denomination that Mark was involved in. So we arrived, there was worship, and I think a little talk, it was Gerald Coates, if you remember him. Afterwards, Mark and I were chatting. Now, Mark's mother was a wonderful, anointed lady with a prophetic gift, a lay reader in her church in Dorset. Mark said that he'd recently been praying with his mother, and his mother had had a prophetic word for me. And it was a picture of my heart, and it was in a bit of a mess. And it needed some healing, but healing wasn't happening because I hadn't let things come up to be healed. That was a hard prophetic word to hear, but Mark and his mother recommended somewhere to me um, called the Han Hill Center of Christian healing. And so I drove up there, I think it was a Monday, stayed there for about five days, and there was each day a teaching on something that the Bible teaches about healing. So last week Jean mentioned about bitter roots. It says in Hebrews, make sure a bitter root doesn't emerge among you. Forgiveness is another big one. Generational issues, believing lies about ourselves or about God. There'd be some teaching, and then a bit of time just to see, is the Holy Spirit bringing something up in me? It took actually being vulnerable, which I find quite difficult. There was a bit of repenting that went on, but it was really helpful. There there were companions on the same journey there, people to pray with, and in that um, brokenness, sometimes we need those sorts of companions. Um, Someone in the 930 services just lent me a book of the history of new wines called Greater Things. 
And at the end of this book, Mary Pitches, who started New Wine with her husband David, is talking about this sort of thing. And she writes, people would turn up on my doorstep for a cup of coffee and a good cry, and I'd pray for them. But I began to think, I need to know how to help them more than I'm doing. This isn't enough. So I started to do some counseling courses, and we started pastoral prayer ministry. And then Paul Harcourt, who has just um, handed over the leadership of New Wine, adds a comment. I've come to realize that the emphasis on the outer journey of mission needs to be supported by the inner journey of personal renewal. So there's an outer journey and an inner journey. I just feel like I want to stop there for a moment and just reflect on this um, ministry of the Lord's healing. It was so wonderful. Was it three weeks ago? Someone got prayed for, got healed. That's what God's about. He is a healer. And little cells, little companies of people can be people who we journey with um, at different times. Now, through the ancient world, in the first century, there were these buildings called Asclepias. And I think they were kind of like hospitals. There was a big one in Corinth. I think the main one was in Corinth. Um, and people would go to them to, for healing. As far as I can work out in their research, it involved a lot of just sleeping in the temple. But apparently this worked, and, and a lot of people um, would, would get healed. Now, if a part of them that had been broken was healed, they would make a ceramic uh, model of the bit of them that had been healed, put it outside the, temp uh, the hospital. And so Corinth, when you walked through Corinth, you were likely to see lots of bits of bodies, but ceramic, and it was sort of this reminder of, you know, when bits get broken, it's really odd, and when they get healed, that's really good and, and set in a body, and Paul may, as well, um, may well have had this imagery in mind when he wrote to the Corinthian church about being a body built together. He wrote, now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. It's a wonderful picture of a community of believers working together interdependent so we've been thinking about companions on the journey the apostle paul wrote that every time we break bread and take communion together we proclaim the lord's death until he comes it declares the fullness of the journey's destination the restoration of all things in christ within these big communities of saints, we have little companies, weekly fellowship, perhaps a group around a shared vision, perhaps going a bit deeper with healing somewhere like Han Hill. So I'd like to leave uh, this with just a couple of questions. One, who am I journeying with at the moment? And two, are there connections that this is a good time to invest in or initiate.